On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today, we're going to talk about a rough one. This is the disturbing and grisly story of the horrific crimes committed by Richard Trenton Chase, the vampire of Sacramento. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. friends, let me be honest. I struggled with whether to cover this one or not, and I struggled with just how much detail I should give. Any of you that are regular listeners, you're probably saying to yourself, she covered Albert Fish for Lord's sake and she did it in detail. What's the big deal? Well, I'll tell you. If you can imagine, I find what Chase did to be almost even more than I can stomach. But then again, I think we listen to true crime for lots of reasons, But I honestly believe deep down we do it for this one reason, which I've mentioned before. There, but for the grace of God, go I. I think we all look into the minds of these criminals, these monsters, if you will, and say, I'm glad that's not me, either victim or monster. So in the end, I decided to go ahead and cover Richard Chase. I am not going to revel in the atrocities he committed, but I'm not going to hold the truth back either. Here's your second warning for this episode. This is very graphic, and it involves harm to animals and children, as well as adults. You've been warned. Richard Trenton Chase was born in May of 1950. He grew up in a strict home ruled by his father, a father who was fond of arguing and fighting with his wife. Chase also had a sister four years younger than him. Chase started down the stereotypical path of a psychotic serial killer by the age of 10 when he started killing cats. Even before that, he liked to start fires and torment small animals. Once Richard is in his teens, he finds out that he has a sexual problem. He can't keep an erection. One of the girls he dated, he was called Rick by her, is the one to relay this information. Obviously, this is going to be a sore subject with Chase. His lack of ability to perform sends him to seek a psychiatrist. That doctor tells him that the real problem is an issue with repressed anger, and it was also suggested by this psychiatrist that Chase might be suffering from a major mental illness. But instead of suggesting commitment or at least treatment, that was the end of it. Eventually, Chase moves out on his own and has a string of roommates who were all aware of his drug use and his weird behavior. For instance, he one time nailed his door shut because unnamed people were invading his space. He also became consumed with the idea that something was wrong with him physically. This idea sticks with him throughout his life. To give you an idea of what kind of things he thought was wrong, he went into an ER once and was searching for someone who stole something from him. Who goes to an emergency room looking for a stolen item? Well, Chase does, because he isn't looking for a stolen wallet or stolen TV. He thinks someone has stolen his pulmonary artery. While there, he complains that there are bones coming out of the back of his head, his stomach is in him backwards, and also that his heart just likes to up and stop beating for no reason. 
Now another psychiatrist gets a look at him, and this one diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, but this doctor also thought he might be suffering from psychosis induced by drug use. This is something called toxic psychosis. So they put Chase under a 72-hour observation and recommend that he stay after that. Even though they wanted him to stay, he was told he could come and go without permission. Doesn't sound real effective to me, but that was their solution. Eventually, they release him, and off he goes into the world again. Chase starts to decline big time. He is messy and unkempt. He keeps doing more and more drugs. And now he's developed hypochondria to boot. Chase was 5'11", but his weight dropped to just 145 pounds. He was living with his mother, but while living there, he starts to believe he's being poisoned. His father tells him he's got to move out, but gets him an apartment to go to. Chase really starts to go off the rail at this point. He starts catching or buying rabbits, which he then kills, takes the entrails, and eats them raw. Now and then, he'll put the entrails into a blender and make a smoothie to drink. This he does for a specific reason. He thinks his heart is shrinking and is going to disappear. His solution to stop this heart shrinkage is the entrail smoothie. He even goes so far as to inject rabbit blood into his own veins. This, of course, results in blood poisoning, but Chase believes it made him sick because the rabbit had ingested battery acid, and the battery acid got into his stomach, and that's why he's ill. Chase is committed and diagnosed as a schizophrenic, which he's been diagnosed with before, but this time with somatic delusions. The basic idea of somatic delusions is that the person has the false belief that their bodily functions or their appearance is grossly abnormal. These kind of delusions are very rare and also a real challenge to treat. Once he's committed, they try a range of antipsychotic medications, all which don't seem to work. This makes them believe that maybe the psychosis that Chase is suffering is because of his heavy drug use. In 1976, Chase escapes the hospital and goes to his mother's house. He's sent back to the hospital and eventually ends up at Beverly Manor. It is at Beverly Manor that he earns the nickname Dracula. Chase would frequently talk about how he killed rabbits, and then one day he is found with blood around his mouth and two birds with broken necks dead outside his window. This is known as Renfield Syndrome. I am a huge fan of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I, of course, know the fictional character Renfield, but I honestly had no idea there was an actual syndrome. So I looked it up. According to Psychology Today, it's technically clinical vampirism, but whichever name you call it by, it basically comes down to this. It's an obsession with drinking blood. And now Chase has been diagnosed with it. And the next logical step? They release him. They say he is no longer a threat or a danger, and off he goes into the world. His parents are grant granted excuse me, conservatorship, which would be renewed once a year. Mom paid for Chase's rent and grocery shop for him. Chase has his own place again, and he immediately starts to catch and torture cats, dogs, and rabbits so he can kill them and drink their blood. He'd even steal his neighbor's pets. At one point, he calls a neighboring family who are looking for their missing dog and tells them what he did to that dog. Now, I must assume that he did this anonymously. I mean, there was no caller ID in the 70s, and you would think if they knew who was calling, they would have turned him in. 
and he would have ended up back in the institution or maybe jail. But that doesn't happen. Now he starts getting interested in guns. He gets a hold of some and starts practicing with them. And at this point, he is still on his psychiatric meds, but he isn't being supervised either. Then his mother gets this brilliant idea. She doesn't think her son needs those meds, and she weans him off of them. In 1977, the conservatorship expires, and his parents do not renew it. Not that it seemed to be helping, for God's sake. If you think taking him off his meds was unbelievable, wait until you hear this. Chase goes to visit his mother. He is just a pounding on the door, and when she answers it, there is her son holding a dead cat. I read in one place it was her cat. He throws the cat down and tears it open with his hands and starts smearing its blood over his face and neck. What does mom do? She ignores it and doesn't report it. At this point, I feel like his mom is either suffering from her own delusions or she just doesn't care that her son is psychotic. I also personally feel that she is to blame to some degree for what happens later. She could have reported his behavior. She could have made sure he stayed medicated even though he was still killing animals on medication. But that means we have to assume he was actually taking them. Who knows? Back on track we go. On August 3rd, 1977, police find Chase's Ford stuck in the sand near Pyramid Lake in Nevada. There are a couple of rifles on the seat, a pile of men's clothing, and there are some blood smears on the inside of the car. And there is a blood-filled bucket that appears to contain a liver as well. They get out the old police binoculars and start searching the landscape. And there is Chase, nude and covered in blood. When Chase realizes he's being watched, he runs off, but they catch him and take him back to his pickup. He tells them that the blood in the bucket is his. It's blood that seeped out of him. And the liver, it turns out, is actually a cow's liver. You would think that now, finally, someone will put him in a place where they can figure out how to help him. But you'd be wrong. It appears he got arrested for this, didn't serve a lot of time, and off he goes back to his apartment. Chase now gets a new obsession. He's busy admiring the hillside strangler who is doing some nasty business not too far away from where Chase is. He is occupying his time reading newspaper articles about the strangler. His obsession with blood and guns and the Hillside Strangler only seemed to make him bolder. On December 29, 1977, Ambrose Griffin, a 51-year-old engineer and father of two, is shot. He and his wife had just gotten back from grocery shopping and were unloading the trunk. Ambrose is on his way back to the car for another load, passing his wife as he goes, and he just drops to the ground. At first, it looks like a heart attack, but it isn't. He's been shot. At the hospital, Mrs. Griffin will tell police she thought her husband was yelling at someone or about something, and then he turned around and fell. She did also say that she'd heard two small popping noises, but really hadn't thought anything of it at the time. This is when she finds out her husband had died because he'd been shot, not of a heart attack. One of the Griffin's sons had told police that he had seen a man with a rifle walking around their East Sacramento neighborhood. They'd followed the man and then called police. When the police look a little deeper, they discover this wasn't the shooter. The rifle was not a 22 caliber weapon, which they knew the murder weapon was. 
on the afternoon of the shooting, a 12-year-old boy said that a man in his mid-20s with brown hair had shot at him from a brown Pontiac Trans Am as the boy was out riding his bike. They hypnotize this boy to see if they can get more info. They do get a license plate, but it doesn't end up leading them anywhere. The police are doing some more digging, and they find a report about a woman who said that a shot had been fired at her house on December 27th. That was two days before Ambrose was shot and killed, and she lived just a few blocks from the Griffin residence. The police search her house, and in the kitchen, they find a 22 caliber slug. It ended up being from the same gun that had killed Ambrose Griffin. After that little find, nothing. No more leads. January 23rd, 1978, a woman named Dawn Larson had a, shall we say, strange encounter with Richard Chase. Dawn and Chase were neighbors in the same apartment complex on Watt Avenue. This complex had a no-pet rule, and yet she'd seen Chase take three animals into his apartment, but then she never saw those animals again. Even though she thought that Chase was odd, she also thought that maybe he was just a lonely guy. One day, Chase asked her for a cigarette. She wanted to be nice, so she gave him one, but when she tried to move on, he wouldn't let her. She handed him the rest of the pack, and only then... Did he let her go? A couple of weeks later, on January 23rd, Jean Layton saw an unkempt younger man with long hair walking towards her. She is standing in her doorway. This young man tries the patio door and finds it locked. Then he tries the windows, but they are also locked. He walks right up to the door, and Jean meets him there. With a face free of emotion, he just stands there and stares at her for a while. Then he lights a cigarette and walks away, using her backyard to go. Down the street from Jean's, Robert and Barbara Edwards are taking groceries into the house when they hear a noise coming from inside. Whoever was lurking around in there heard them coming, and the next thing they hear is a window slamming on the back of the house. Around the corner comes a messy-looking young man running right towards them. Mr. Edwards tries to get a hold of him, but he runs past him and into the street. Mr. Edwards chases him, but the young man jumps a fence, and Mr. Edwards loses him. The police are called, and when they get to the Roberts' house, they find that it has been trashed. There are valuables missing, so they think robbery. But they also find a couple of things that you wouldn't find in a typical robbery. The intruder had urinated into a drawer full of clean baby clothes and then defecated on a child's bed. Meanwhile, the intruder who we know is Richard Chase, but police do not, isn't just running away. He is running up onto random porches and trying the front doors to several houses. Then his search ends at 2360 Tioga Way, where the door is unlocked. Before he goes in, he puts a 22 caliber bullet in the mailbox. This is the home of David and Teresa Wallen. Teresa was 22 years old and three months pregnant. Chase encounters her when he enters. She's on her way to take the trash out. When she sees Chase, she drops the trash, and in response to seeing the gun in his hand, she puts her own hand up to her face. He shoots her twice. The first one goes through her palm, up her arm, and nicks her neck after it exits at her elbow. The other shot goes straight into the top part of her skull, and she falls. Chase now kneels over her and takes a third shot, putting this one into her temple. Chase takes her body into the bedroom and then goes and gets a knife from the kitchen and an empty yogurt container out of the trash bag that Teresa had been carrying. 
When David Wallen comes home from work that night, he enters an empty house. The family's German shepherd is there waiting for him, but there is no sign of his wife. The stereo is on, and there is what he thinks is an oil stain on the carpet. He follows the stain to the bedroom, and this is what he finds. Teresa is on her back with her sweater pulled up over her breasts and her pants and underwear around her ankles. Her knees are spread. Her left nipple has been removed. Her stomach is cut open and her spleen and intestines have been pulled out. She'd been stabbed repeatedly in the chest, in the lungs and liver and her left breast. It also appeared her kidneys had been cut out and her pancreas cut in two. The kidneys were then put back inside of her body. Obviously, David is screaming at this sight. He will later find out that the killer had smeared her blood all over his face and then licked his fingers. The bathroom is smeared with blood and the discarded yogurt container had blood stains on it as if it had been used as a drinking glass. There were rings of blood around her like you'd get if a bucket had been in those places. And the final insult was that Teresa's mouth had been stuffed with dog feces. A couple of days later, a puppy was found mutilated and killed not too far from the Wallen house. A weird man with stringy hair and driving a Ford Ranchero had purchased two puppies from the family. A third puppy from the litter was found mysteriously dead. On January 27th, 38-year-old Evelyn Miroth was babysitting her 20-month-old nephew at her house just a mile from the Wallen house. Her friend Dan Meredith, who was 51, had come over to help out. Evelyn's six-year-old son Jason was getting ready to head to a friend's house. But Jason never gets there. The friend's mother sends her daughter over to see where Jason is. The girl comes back and said that she could see movement from the front window, but no one would come to the door. The neighbors find this pretty disturbing, so eventually one of them enters the house to make sure everything is okay. Things were not okay. Police were called. This is the scene. Dan Meredith is dead in the hallway. There is a gunshot wound to his head. In the bathroom, police find bloody water in the bathtub. They go to the bedroom, and they find Evelyn naked on the bed with her legs splayed. She has a gunshot wound to the head, and her intestines have been pulled out through a wound in her stomach. There are two blood-stained carving knives near her body. To police, it seems that Evelyn was taking a bath when the killer surprised her. She'd been sodomized and then stabbed through her anus into her uterus at least a half a dozen times. There are also several slices across her neck, and there has been an attempt to remove one of her eyes. On the other side of the bed is the body of six-year-old Jason, who'd been shot in the head twice at close range. The police find bloody shoe prints at the scene that resemble the ones found at the Wallen residence. I would think at this point the gunshots, the splayed legs of the two female victims, and the mutilation to the abdominal areas would make it pretty obvious it was the same perpetrator. Police start asking around and find an 11-year-old girl who said she saw a man in the area around 11. She said that he looked to be in his 20s, and the description of him matched that of a man seen several times in the area who was asking people for magazines. The red station wagon belonging to Dan Meredith that was parked out front of the house earlier is missing. It is right about then that Karen Ferreira arrived. She is Evelyn's sister-in-law, and her son David is the 20-month-old that Evelyn was babysitting. No one has seen the baby, but there is a bullet hole in a pillow in the crib, and there is also a lot of blood there as well. What had actually happened 
is that after Chase is done drinking Evelyn's blood, he killed the baby and then mutilated the baby's body in the bathroom where he'd originally attacked Evelyn. He split the little skull open and little pieces of brain went into the tub. It seems like the neighbor girl knocking on the door had startled him, so he took the baby's body with him and left. He then took the body home and decapitated it. After that, he removed several organs and ate them. While Chase is doing these unspeakable things, the police are out looking for him. They might not know his name, but they're looking. The station wagon belonging to Dan is found not too far from where the murders occurred. The keys are in it when it is found. Police know that there is very little hope that baby David will be found alive, but they are not giving up. What they didn't know was that the parking lot where they found the car was about a hundred yards from the apartment where Chase lived. Now the FBI joins in on the case. Robert Ressler and Russ Vorpagel worked up a profile of who they thought their killer was. They said he would be a disorganized killer and that he really hadn't planned the crimes and he didn't do much at all to cover up or destroy evidence. He'd left footprints and fingerprints and had probably just strolled away from the murder scenes with blood on his clothes. The fact that he'd taken a car from the last scene meant he'd walked there, so he probably lived somewhere nearby. They were also quite convinced that he would just go on killing if he wasn't caught. They said he was a white male, mid-twenties, probably thin and malnourished. They were also positive that there would be evidence of his crimes in his residence, and if he had a vehicle, there would be evidence there too. They said he'd probably have a history of mental illness or drug use or both. He would be a loner, and if he was employed, it would be as an unskilled laborer. They also believed he might be on disability. And this final piece of their profile is that they believed he would live alone and be paranoid. I don't know about you, but the way they nailed this profile gives me goosebumps. A lot of people in the surrounding area were questioned, and some of them did report seeing a white man driving a red station wagon. A sketch artist attempted to come up with a picture of the man, but the descriptions weren't all that helpful, except what they get from a woman named Nancy Holden. Back on the day that Robert Edwards had chased an intruder from his home, Nancy Holden had experienced an odd encounter. She'd been shopping not far from Watt Avenue and very close to the Wallen residence. A strange man, looking confused, walked up to her. She made an attempt to avoid him, but he asked her a question that startled her. He asked, Were you on the motorcycle when Kurt was killed? Ten years earlier, Nancy had dated a guy named Kurt, who ended up being killed in a motorcycle accident. As she's standing there in the store, looking at this strange man, stunned by his question, she realizes there is something vaguely familiar about him. Nancy comes right out and asks him, who he is and he says Rick Chase. This to her is as surprising as the question he'd ask. The Rick Chase she'd known in high school was clean cut. This Rick was grimy and dirty and seemed very agitated. She'd heard rumors that since high school Rick had gotten heavy into drugs and as she's looking at him she's pretty much convinced that rumor must be true. She remains there and talks with him briefly, trying to find a way to escape this conversation. When he goes to pay for something, she makes her escape, but he follows her, asking for a ride. Nancy managed to get into her car, get the windows rolled up and the doors locked before he could catch her. Even though she knew it was rude, 
Something in her made her want to do nothing but get away from him. After Nancy sees a police sketch of a disheveled man that was seen in the neighborhood wearing an orange ski parka, she remembers that Rick had been wearing one the same as that the day she'd run into him. She reports her thoughts to police. This is five days after the Wallen murder. Police run a background check on Chase and find his history of mental illness, which included the escape from the mental hospital. He also has a concealed weapons charge, the arrest in Nevada, and some minor drug busts. They get his address, and on a Saturday afternoon, they go to Watt Avenue. This is just one day after the triple homicide of Evelyn, Jason, and Dan. It's actually a quadruple because they don't know baby David is also dead. The apartment manager tells them that Chase's mother pays the rent and the mother told the manager that she believes her son is a victim of LSD abuse. They also find out that Chase won't let his mother come inside of his apartment. Police are a knock-knock-knocking on Chase's door, but he will not answer. They decide to act like they are leaving and then they hide, waiting for him to come out. When he does, he's carrying a box. He tries to walk to his car, but police nab him. Chase puts up a pretty big struggle, but in the end, they get him under control. He is wearing an orange parka with dark stains on it, and his shoes look like they are covered in blood. Inside the box are blood-stained papers and rags. They take a 22 pistol off of him, which also has bloodstains on it, and Dan Meredith's wallet is in Chase's back pocket. He's also got latex gloves in a pocket. Chase is taken to the police station and questioned. He refuses to admit to any murders. Meanwhile, back at his apartment, police are in for a shock. The place smells like putrefaction, and it is a disgusting mess. Almost everything in the place has bloodstains on it, and this includes food and drinking glasses. In the kitchen, there are several small pieces of bone and dishes in the fridge with body parts on them. One container has human brain tissue. There are pet collars in the kitchen, but no pets to go with them. There is also a blender that is completely stained with blood and smells like rotting flesh. There are photographic overlays taken from a science book showing human organs and a newspaper with ads advertising dogs for sale that are circled. And there is a calendar there with the word today written on the dates of both the Wallen and Miroth murders. There were also 44 more upcoming days on the calendar with that same word. Evidence was taken from Chase to compare to samples they already had that were being analyzed at the lab from the victims. There was a lot of blood on Chase and they also took hair samples from him. When they tried to get a blood sample, they had to restrain Chase. They didn't yet know about his super heightened fear of losing his own blood. While this is going on, the police are still out looking for the baby. They even used a bloodhound, but didn't come up with anything. They went to Chase's mother's house and found her very uncooperative. Even knowing what the police had found, this woman says that that didn't prove her son had done anything wrong. Talk about denial. While he's in jail, Chase tells another inmate that he had to drink the blood of his victims because he had blood poisoning and that he was tired of hunting and killing animals. Sounds like a good reason to kill people. Finally, on March 24th, a church janitor finds a box containing the remains of a male infant. 
He calls police, and once they get there, they identify the clothing on the baby. It is baby David. The baby had been decapitated, and the head was beneath the torso. The baby was partially mummified. There was a hole in the center of the head from the gunshot, and there were other stab wounds to the body and some broken ribs. Underneath the body and the head, they found a key ring that belonged to Dan Meredith. The lead prosecutor in the case was Ronald Tochterman, and he wanted the death penalty. The defense, of course, entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but Tochterman wasn't having any of that. He fully intended to show that Chase knew right from wrong. Tochterman also did some research into blood-related crimes and blood rituals in various cultures. He found that some believed to drink another person's blood gave you strength or would heal you. Tochterman planned to show that even if this was a belief of Chase's, it wasn't a good excuse for murder. Prior to the trial, a dozen psychiatrists had examined Chase. He even told one of those psychiatrists that he was bothered about killing people and that he was also afraid that they would come back from the dead to get him. At that point, he never said to any of those psychiatrists that he was compelled by someone or something to kill. He just had the simple belief that the blood was therapeutic for him. One of the psychiatrists said he was not schizophrenic but was antisocial and also said that Chase was well aware of what he had done and that it was wrong. On January 2nd, 1979, the trial started. Chase was facing six counts of murder. The prosecutor pointed out that Chase brought along rubber gloves, which showed an intent to murder. The first witness in the four-month trial was David Wallen, who discovered the body of his wife and the horrific state it was in. After him, there were nearly another 100 witnesses. Chase took the stand in his own defense. Picture him, if you will. By this time, he's dropped to 107 pounds. He has sunken eyes and probably looks like a skeleton with flesh on it. He claims that he was only partially conscious when he killed Wallen, and then went on to talk in detail about how mistreated he was through much of his life. On the stand, he admitted to drinking Wallen's blood. As far as the second series of murders, he claims not to remember much, but he does admit to remembering shooting the baby, cutting the baby's head off, and says he left the baby's body in a bucket in the hopes he'd get some more blood out of it. He said on the stand that he thought the baby was, quote, something else, but he would not elaborate any further. He also blamed his sexual dysfunction in his teens as the cause of his problems, and he did claim to be sorry for killing the people. The defense argued for second-degree murder because they claimed he was clearly insane and just hadn't gotten the proper help. Tochterman argued that Chase was a sexual sadist and a monster and that he knew exactly what he was doing and that there was no hope of saving him. On May 8th, after five hours of deliberating, the jury came back with six counts of first-degree murder. During the sanity phase, the jury decided that Chase was legally sane and after just an hour of deliberation, they voted for death in the gas chamber at San Quentin. FBI profiler Robert Ressler interviewed Chase, and you can read about these encounters in the book Whoever Fights Monsters. Here are some of the things he gleaned from Chase. He once asked Chase how he selected his victims. His response was that he would just go down a street and try the doors. He said, if the door was locked, that means you're not welcome. 
Chase believed that his blood was turning to powder, so naturally he needed to get more blood to replace it. Back when he was committed, those psychiatrists were aware of that belief, but for some unknown reason, they still didn't think he was dangerous. He said that the first killing happened after his mother didn't let him come home for Christmas. He was supposedly just shooting out of the car window. Chase planned to appeal his conviction, and he said the reason was that he only killed because he was trying to preserve his own life. He mentioned to Ressler something about soap dish poisoning. When asked what that was, Chase basically said this. Well, if you lift the soap up out of a soap dish and it's dry, you're in good shape. All is well. But if you lift it and it's gooey underneath, you've got the poisoning. And that is going to turn your blood to powder. And that powder will zap all of your energy and eat away at your body. Chase also claimed that he was Jewish. He wasn't. He claimed he was persecuted by Nazis because of a Star of David he had on his forehead. But guess what? He didn't have a Star of David on his forehead. He also said that Nazis and UFOs are connected. And the UFOs had told him, via telepathy, that he needed to kill to replenish his blood. The UFOs also followed him around. And if the FBI wanted, they could find these UFOs if they put radar on Chase. During this particular discussion with Wrestler, Chase then handed a cup of macaroni and cheese to Wrestler and told him he needed it analyzed for poison. While in prison, the other inmates steered clear of Chase. I don't blame them. They did, however, encourage him to kill himself. I'm guessing from a distance. And he took their advice. On December 26, 1980, a guard looked in on Chase. He was in his bunk, breathing normally. He didn't respond to the guard's greeting, but apparently that wasn't unusual. At 11.05, the same guard checked on Chase again. Chase was on his stomach, both legs off the bunk, and his feet were touching the floor. His arms were extended toward the pillow, and his head was on the mattress. The guard called out to him, but he didn't answer. The guard went in and pulled Chase off of the bed and found that he was dead. The coroner was called, and while searching the cell, he found a strange suicide note that mentioned taking pills. Chase had been receiving medication via a packet of three pills every day. It appears he was squirreling them away and then finally took them all at once. His cause of death was toxic ingestion. Ironically, the heart he thought was shrinking was found at autopsy to be perfectly normal and actually in good shape. And that is how the vampire of Sacramento ended up dead, and I don't think he'll be missed. I believe that I read that the files on him with the FBI are still used when um, agents are learning about disorganized killers. I got a lot of my information from SerialKillerCalendar.com and CriminalLibrary.com. Hang tight for the final crumb. You can get all episodes of Crime Biscuit on Pandora, Audible, Spotify, Apple iTunes, iHeart, UFO Radio, just kidding, wherever you like to get your podcasts. Follow me on Instagram at CrimeBiscuit or drop me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. A gooey soap dish is a common phenomenon. Wet soap creates goo. It's not a crystal ball into the health of your blood. Trust me. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.